Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 Third Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. So we have been working through the Gospel of Luke here, and we'll pick that up again in the middle of February. We're taking a brief seven-week series uh, for a series here called Some Assembly Required. And most of us don't care at all what our series are titled, but I like this one because it's got a little bit of a pun woven into it because the Greek word for church, ekklesia, means simply a gathering or an assembly. And part of what we do, I want to do in this series, is to show you how the assembly, the gathering of the church, is not only required in Scripture, but that is to be greatly desired in Scripture. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, in talking about the cross where Jesus went and endured the most anguish he's ever endured, that he did it for the love of the church, of the gathering that he might wash her and present her holy and spotless, radiant before himself as he continues to set her apart by the work of his Holy Spirit. How much more ought we who are not Jesus, who are not the incarnate son of God, not only seek to use the beautiful tool of the church that God has given to us, but to desire to see it as Jesus sees it. My wife and I were once gifted a rice cooker And we saw very little value in it. And mostly that's because we had no idea how to use it. And because we're responsible adults, we misplaced the instruction manual. So it sat on our shelf for most of its life until we had some missionaries from the Middle East come and want to cook us food. And they asked if we had a rice cooker. I said, we have a thing. We don't know how to use it. And they showed us the simplicity and the beauty of it. In a moment, our view of that thing changed. If you've had a meal at Sarah and I's house, you've probably had something made in a rice cooker. As simple as it is, it is now beautiful and lovely. It is useful and wonderful in our hearts. And what we want to do in this series is show you that the church is so much greater than a rice cooker, amen? There is beautiful utility in the gathering of the Lord's church. And this beauty includes, as we'll see every Sunday for the next seven weeks, a utility that is applied outside the church, that is throughout the week, but something that is applied exclusively inside that, the church, that is something distinct as we gather. And so we're gonna talk about what we do on Sundays that shapes what we do throughout the week. And so we'll talk about why we have a call to worship. This is your first time here. We'll talk about why Johnny prays for a really long time in the pastoral prayer portion. We'll talk about why we give, why we sing, why we're here Because hidden in the simplicity of what we do as the church gathered and as we go throughout the week is meant to show us the beauty and the utility of the gospel for all who see it as such. But today we're going to talk about what might be for you the most already assumed and obvious aspect of the church, and that is to answer the question, why we gather? Why are we here? Two weeks ago, we gathered the day after Christmas Next year, Christmas falls on a Sunday, and we will gather on that Sunday. Why? Why will we gather here this week? Why will we be gathering unless the Lord changes something 50 years from now, 100 years from now? And this is an important question to answer, but the truth is it's not a new one. In fact, one pastor writing in the early church in the 300s AD wrote a little pamphlet to his church called To Those Who Had Not Attended the Assembly. And what's interesting is our excuses haven't changed. He wrote to a church 
where people weren't coming, only coming on the special days, the feast days, the Christmases, the Easter's, the Mother's Days, and they weren't called those back then, okay? Mother's Day wasn't around in 300. Um, But uh, he said some of the excuses were it was too hot. This church met in Constantinople, which is now Turkey. In the summer, it's hot, sweaty, sticky, feels like me every Sunday of the year. There are other people who didn't know what to do with their kids. They didn't have any kids' ministry back then, and parents saw that as a burden. There are other people who were annoyed at other people in the church, even sinned against by other people in the church. He knew all of that. He knew all of our weaknesses. He knew all of the weaknesses of the church, and yet he still wrote to accomplish what the author of Hebrews did, as we'll look at in Hebrews chapter 10, And what I want to do today, to quote, kindle the zeal for the assembly, that is, the church. And they were going to examine what Johnny just read for us, which was the first gathering of new covenant, Holy Spirit-filled believers as the church in all of scripture. And we're going to answer the question of why we gather by looking at three points. And that is this, in verses 36 through 41 of Acts chapter 2, we're going to see we gather because the gospel creates a community. And then in verses 41 through 47, we're going to see the gospel compels a community. And then lastly, we're going to see the Lord's Day is the distinct center of the community. So as we're going to see in the book of Acts, it's helpful for us. We're familiar. Acts is written by Luke. We've been looking at Luke's first part of his writing in Luke's gospel. And so this is semi-similar to us, but some context helps still. And that is that before Acts 2 ever happens, Acts 1 does, and that's important. In Acts 1, the freshly resurrected Jesus has been appearing to his disciples for a period of 40 days with many signs and proofs, showing that he had indeed resurrected from the dead and defeated sin, and he was now with his people. And yet Jesus had told his church and his disciples to stay together, to wait in Jerusalem until he would breathe out on them the promise of the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus left, and Acts chapter 2 begins as the disciples are gathered together in one place, waiting. And one day, it finally happened. The day was the Jewish feast of Pentecost, and as God's believers were gathered together in one place, the Holy Spirit fell on Jesus' disciples, and the apostle Peter fell up in what, or stood up in what was the first spirit-filled preaching of the post-Jesus church and delivered this wonderful message of salvation that talked about what God did from day one to present day to redeem his people through Jesus Christ. And at this feast of Pentecost, Jews and converts to Judaism had flocked from all over to Jerusalem. So there were representatives from what was most of the known world who heard Peter's gospel message preached from all of Scripture, not just the New Testament, as the New Testament was still being written, but the Old Testament. And our passage today picks up with the very last portion of Peter's sermon, which is a summary of everything he said prior to it. And what we read in most of our time today is the people's response to Peter's message. So with that said, let's read this, beginning with Peter's summary statement in Acts 2, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, who is him, this Jesus, whom you crucified. 
Now, when they heard this, that is all the multitudes who came together for Pentecost, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. So here we see our first point this morning is that we gather because the gospel creates a community. Everything we're about to see and what we just read and what followed would follow because of the message Peter just proclaimed. This message that Peter summarized, that Jesus Christ is the Lord's Messiah, the anointed one who would bring salvation from people who live in sinful rebellion to God to restore them into fellowship with the one who they were created to enjoy, that this Jesus who you crucified and missed entirely, that's it. This is the plan of God, and there is still hope for you in this Jesus. And this is so important because here the first assembly of people who believed in Jesus Christ, the first church community was formed in the shadow of the gospel being proclaimed. Where there is no preaching of the gospel, there can be no church. The proclamation of Jesus Christ and his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection is the only soil from which a true gospel church can grow. Where there is no gospel, there's no church. You can have many things without having a church. You have stellar childcare. You'd have gifted speaking. You could have a wonderful social club. You could have a great civics group. You could have live music and emotional hurrah. But if the gospel is not preached, there is zero potential for a church to actually be there. And it is in the preaching of the gospel that the church becomes possible. But the preaching of the gospel doesn't necessarily make a church either, does it? Hearing the gospel doesn't necessarily make you a Christian, does it? What we see in this text is not only was the gospel preached, but the gospel was believed and the gospel was responded to. We grow up right now in America, which even as Christian influence is waning, the majority of us can say at some point, whether in a trite TV show or in a church or vacation Bible school or on Christian music, we have heard the gospel. We've heard the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. But what we just saw is the true community of the church which follows, not only hears the message of salvation, but they respond to it in conversion, by repenting, by being baptized, and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at what happened again in verses 37 and 41. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent, 
Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so here we see the church is a community called out by the gospel. The gospel call goes out, but those who hear the gospel and respond to the gospel are marked out by distinct responses to the gospel. That is, the Christian message produces a Christian response. Many people heard the gospel that day. There are many, many multitudes. But who, at the end of this passage, were those who were saved? Those who received his word? who were baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. And here's something really beautiful about the gospel of Jesus Christ is what happened in Peter's declaration was that people experienced guilt over their sin. It said they were cut to the heart at the idea that they had caused Jesus to die. More than that, that they had murdered Jesus. If you think about it, our world is really good at cutting people to the heart. Our world knows how to make you feel guilty and lousy and shameful. Our world can do all of this at the drop of a hat. You don't accept enough. You're not tolerant enough. You don't recycle enough. You're not clean enough. You don't eat wholesome foods enough. You don't love enough. You don't care enough. You don't exercise enough. You don't make enough. You don't have sex enough. You don't matter enough. And all of these solutions that the world gives are solutions that move. What defined enough yesterday, you hope is enough tomorrow, but what if the standards change? What if there's a new eating regimen, a new fitness program, a new financial status marker? We all know what it's like to be cut to the heart, and that's because whether we know it or not and have biblical terms for it or not, we know there is nothing more common to humanity than our brokenness. And so for someone to come in and point out our flaws, our weaknesses, or what the Bible calls our sin, means that anyone who is sober can see it and can feel it. But it's only the message of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel, that simultaneously cuts you to the heart, but then tells you where to go to receive healing. All of those who come to Jesus Christ come through the blade of conviction of sin, but we come to Jesus who says, repent and believe the gospel and you will be saved. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And these people go to Peter and they say, what must we do? And Peter says, give enough Attend church enough. Memorize scripture enough. He doesn't say any of that, does he? He says, repent. 
and be baptized, every one of you. And in those things, you will receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. This is the gift of conversion in Jesus Christ. The mark of a true Christian is not that they hear the gospel or that they go to a community where the gospel is proclaimed, but that they are convicted of their sins They are compelled by the offer of eternal life and they are changed as a response. They say no to sin and yes to Jesus. They are identified with Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection in baptism and they are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the first way a church is marked off in this text. That is in the assembly of this Acts 2 moment, there are those who were converted who repented, who saw sin as distasteful, who wanted to be identified in Jesus' substitutionary life, death, and resurrection, and who were as part of the promise of God's long-standing promise to dwell with his people, immediately filled with the Holy Spirit. And then there were those who did not. And you see, in any gathering, even in this gathering, there are those who have heard, and there's those who have heard And responded. It's easy for us to find a community where we can belong without ever being converted. In our day and age, it's it's super easy to find a church, to listen to one online. But if you're here and if you have not responded to this gospel by repenting, believing, and by being baptized, I want to say we are so glad you're here. We want you to feel welcomed here. Why? Because each and every one of us stood where you stood. Far from God. None of us were born saints. All of us were born sinners. But at some point, God opened our eyes, called us to Jesus, and changed us in our faith and repentance. We want you to feel welcomed here. But at some point, if you're unwilling to be converted to Jesus, I hope that this assembly becomes increasingly uncomfortable to you. I hope you begin to say, like, man, these people take this thing really seriously. Why is it in every song, in every sermon, in every prayer, they keep calling us to see the beauty and the wonder and to give our lives for the glory of Jesus and to think less of ourselves and more of others and to to really put on the idea that to live is Christ and to die is gain and to be poured out as a drink offering to our Savior and to die with nothing but to have Christ is really to have everything. I hope it becomes uncomfortable for you because we exist not to make you belong here but to make you belong to Jesus. And to belong to Jesus is to find a great acceptance here. So not only does the gospel mark out those who in the gathering believed and are baptized, but we also see that it marked off the church from the world. Look back at Acts 2 verse 40 where Peter continues. He doesn't say, you believed, you're good, we're done. He says, with many other words, he bore witnesses, or he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. The church in its conversion was a group of people who were called out of the world, away from a crooked generation, and to live in an entirely new way. The community who believed the gospel together was still in the world. God hasn't chosen to take his church out of the world yet. That day is coming, church. That will be a great day, but that day is not yet. So we live in the world, but God has called us to not look like the world to increasingly set ourselves apart from this crooked generation. The church is not only where we are saved by Jesus, the church is where, by the power of grace, we are day by day looking more and more like Jesus. 
that there is growth as Jesus in Ephesians 5 is washing us and purifying us to present us what we will be at the end of all things. And so what does this community look like? A community marked out by conversion, becoming more like Jesus? Well, here we see our second point today. And this is that the gospel compels a community. Look with me at verses 41 through 47. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so I actually wrestled. I'm not sure, and it would be really disappointing, so don't tell me, if the headings for my sermons actually mean nothing to you. Because today I was wrestling over the verbiage of it. Like, do I call this the gospel compels a community or I call the gospel shapes a community? We see the shape of what this church looks like. There are all these things. But then is it a form? Is it like a mold that all gospel communities then look like this community? But then I talked myself around. This is what you guys pay me to do. I talked myself around and I landed on compelled because what we see in this passage is nothing more than joyful compulsion. The church in its conversion had just been filled by the Holy Spirit as the promise of God's long-awaited indwelling. And immediately those who repented, who believed, who were baptized, who were filled with the Holy Spirit, were so moved to automatically, without instruction, begin to spend all their time together. I've done lots of marriage I mean, I've been married once. Uh, I've officiated lots of weddings. I've done lots of pre-marriage. And interestingly enough, I have never had to teach that couple that they should live together after they're married. It just comes natural. Not because I said, well, this is the form. Generally, when people get married, they go live together, and that seems to be a good thing for you too, I think. I could... I could say marriage is shaped by this unique intimacy and part of that intimacy is coming together and being together. It's true. But what's more compelling is the desire innate to that relationship that they would dwell together in community. And so here the gospel was believed by a community of people and immediately without instruction, those people formed a community. And you see the basis of that community in verse 44, something super important. If you've got your Bibles, look at it there. It says, all who believed were together. The community of the church was formed as what was believed in the gospel now gathered people together in the gospel. This is the kind of unity our world clamors for, but we can never see this unity apart from the church. Our world loves diversity as a buzzword, but here is diversity not based off of where you're from, what color your skin is, who you voted for, how much you make, how many kids you have, whether you're single or married. Here is a community gathered together by unmerited grace, not by anything you've done, but by what Jesus has done in your place and then bound together in enduring relationship by their belief in the gospel. 
This passage we're looking at today makes up the goal of our covenant membership at Sovereign Hope. We talk about membership here at Sovereign Hope. We're a church that's run by her members. We like to talk about members believing together. We see that in verse 44. We talk about members belonging together. We see that in verses 44 through 46. And we believe together and we belong together for the purpose of becoming Christ-like together. And we see that in verse 40. And so what does that look like in our church? It looks like a community of believers who by nature of their belief in what Jesus has done and called us to do, we respond with repentance and baptism, and then we covenant ourselves together to become more and more like Jesus. If you're interested in membership, you can pick up a packet at the info desk or talk to an elder. But the main thing today is not to say join a church. The main thing today is that we join Jesus through Christian response and that we have a value for the church as Jesus values it. And the whole nature of what we see follow in this passage shows us the community of believers gathered for two reasons. One, because it was their joyful design in their salvation. This is exactly what God wanted to do. And secondly, that it was to benefit their faith and the faith of their brothers and sisters in Christ. So why does the church begin to gather? Because that's how God designed it. And that's the way we need it. But what does that look like? In the church. Well, Luke shows us five specific functions in verses 42 through 47, and we can kind of boil those down into three categories. These believers were committed to three things. That was teaching, hospitality, and piety. They dedicated themselves, it says in verse 42, to the apostles' teaching. And we're going to look at teaching, both in uh, the sermon on why we read and the sermon on why we preach, But for the time being, it's important for us to see that we need to gather because we always need to be taught. We always need to be reminded. Look back at what Peter did in Acts 2, verse 40. He had already, what did Peter just do? He just gave like a sermon that would just level all of us. So good, so powerful. 3,000 people are about to believe. But look at what he did afterwards. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. Peter continued to teach. A life of following Jesus is a life of growing in our understanding of God's word and what God has done for us. If you're someone who thinks you know the Bible enough, you've studied enough theology that you can't possibly learn anything more, in the Lord's church, that is no status of your intelligence. But instead, it's a status of your arrogance. It doesn't show how wonderfully smart you are. It shows where you have lack. One of the privileges I have is I get to be chaplain for the Grizzly football team. And God was so gracious once that I was able to watch one of those players come to faith in Jesus to respond Christianly with repentance and baptism. And it wasn't long after he was converted, having really zero background for reading God's word. Here I was, I was raised in the church. I went to school learned all the theology, and we were studying a text in the book of Mark that I preached. And he pointed out something to me that was so incredibly true and so incredibly profound that it changes the way I preach that passage. It doesn't matter if you follow Jesus for a little bit of time or for a long time. We are always in need of being taught scripture by each other because we will never exhaust the wonder and the riches of knowing God through his word. 
We need to be taught because in being taught about God, we learn to love God. In seeing how we're to live and how we apply God's word to others, we better ourselves and we better those around us. But they're also devoted not just to teaching, but to hospitality. It says, day by day, they were fellowshipping together. This is verse 46. And meeting together and breaking bread in their own homes. They're physically together. When Jesus brings us to himself, he brings us into the life of others in a physical and in a known way. This wasn't just transactional community. This wasn't going to the Taco Bell line, buying your food, saying thank you for breaking this burrito with me and going your own way. There's an enduring relationship that continued here. And I understand that we offer a live stream. I understand that COVID has placed a unique burden on us. There are many people not here today wanting to be wise or already being sick. But with all that wisdom, I want us to know with clarity the significance the Bible places on fellowshipping with one another and showing hospitality in person to our fellow brothers and sisters in the faith. When you arrived here this morning, God was already calling you to participate in the walk of others through your greeting and your care for them. There's already grounds for hospitality. In talking to many church leaders in this post-COVID, post-COVID, it's the funniest joke you'll ever hear, uh, in this world, there are many churches, ourselves included, that are seeing members who we saw repent, who we baptized, walk away from the faith. And as painful as this reality is, and it is painful and it's hard and it's sober, how affirming is it that the regular gathering of the Lord's church is that powerful? That when we are committed to weekly gathering with each other and throughout the week, that it generally strengthens the church. Brothers and sisters, if we went through a two-year period where church attendance was eliminated for a season and then sporadic at best and it had no effect on our walk, then everything God said about the church would not be true. But the fact that we feel the burden of it, as difficult as that is, is God reminding us of his goodness in the church. That the care we extend to one another is part of God's care for your soul. This is what the author of Hebrews assumes in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25, where he says, let us hold fast our confession of hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He's after the endurance of your salvation. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. How are we going to do that? Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are to exercise hospitality and care with the eternal well-being of our brothers and sisters in mind. Not only was a church committed to teaching and hospitality, but it was also compelled to acts of piety. Piety is this word, and maybe uh, this is another thing where you probably don't even care I use the word piety, but Daniel and I had like a 15-minute discussion on like what word we want to use here for this because many of us think of piety and we think of like those stodgy, pious hypocrites. It's bad, but piety simply means it's acts of faith done publicly and privately. It's you living out faith in a distinct and different way. And here we see this piety. We see faith working itself out in two specific ways. They were praying together and they were giving to each other 
to the needs of the body. It was both prayerfulness and generosity which shaped the hospitality of the church, which means when they gathered together, this is where the church becomes distinct. And we need to know this because it's so easy for us to just cut and paste relationships with biblical hospitality. And you can't have biblical hospitality without relationships, but biblical hospitality is more than relationships. How do we know that? Because they didn't just know each other. They didn't just gather together and watch football or talk about fantasy sports or what they're going to do with their kids that week. They got together and their hospitality was shaped by prayerfulness and their spiritual needs and by practically responding to their physical needs. And what you'll notice here is that they, as they learned together, as they ate together, as they prayed together, they were growing together. Spiritual disciplines like Bible reading and prayer and sacrificial giving didn't grow in an isolated lab. God didn't say, Peter didn't say, all right, all you who repented, you guys go over here and you go to seminary for a little bit. I love seminary. I went to seminary. I hope we have more seminarians come out of our church. But he didn't say, go to seminary, get the knowledge you need and come back and show us what holy people look like. And said all of those spiritual disciplines grew in the relational context of the church. And you'll notice is this teaching, caring, praying community actually gathered day by day. It was not simply a one and done mentality for the week. It wasn't legalistic. They weren't commanded to, but the joy of helping one another follow Jesus naturally compelled them to live like this. Everyone. That includes introverts and extroverts. That includes morning people and night people. That includes parents with kids and college students all drawn together for the mutual joy of care and fellowship. And this is why we have community groups at Sovereign Hope. Our community groups are simply meant to be neighborhood-based geographic locations where it's easy to gather, to care, to break bread, to pray, and to learn together because you live near each other. Just this Thursday... I'm pretty sure most of you would have been glad if your community group was not across town in the midst of a snowpocalypse. It was just around the corner. That's the kind of culture we want our community groups to have, where it just so happens that God has brought us together to accomplish these feats together. And what we see in this text is that not only were the people believing and gathering together, but they were also, we see in verse 47, having favor with all the people in the city. Now, we know as the book of Acts goes on, that's not always the case. Christians don't march into any community and just get met with favor. There's real opposition, real hardship in following Jesus. But we see as this community that gathered together was also concerned with the community in which they gathered. In line with this, the goal of our community groups are simply to encourage one another and to serve the city in a distinctly gospel-centered way. I've watched news reports, maybe you've seen this on nature biographies, but scientists are going to places where coral reefs used to live and now they've died and they're dropping down these big construction-looking concrete barriers. But these have been designed so that they're artificial reefs, that they get dropped like concrete into the ocean and then pretty soon the coral returns and living coral consumes it and you no longer see the structure of the concrete. It just looks like living, thriving coral reefs. This is what our community groups are designed to do. They're the concrete structures that we hope no one ends up seeing because this life is happening all over regardless. 
They exist not apart from the church. They don't exist as this special ministry inside of the church. They're just places where we want to encourage the church to be a biblical church, an Acts 2 type of church. And what's compelling about this community is if you look back at Acts chapter 2, we see something really unique. We see first in verses 37 through 41, Peter's message. Peter is standing up. He is heralding. He is preaching. And what's the result? 3,000 people were added that day. 3,000 souls got saved. That's a good sermon. If I stood up and I preached that sermon, you guys would probably say, that's a good preacher. But look at what followed. In verses 42 through 47, we don't necessarily hear of Peter standing up and heralding, though that's certainly happening on the Lord's Day, as we'll talk about in a moment. But what we see instead is the dynamic nature of this community. But what comes at the end of this community? Verse 47 God was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Conversion is happening everywhere. Conversioning is happening as the result of biblical sermons. Conversion is happening as the result of biblical church community. I'm not sure if you grew up in the church or have any presuppositions towards it, but oftentimes there's this false dichotomy where there's two types of Christians. There are the evangelism Christians who are concerned about the lost, and there's the church Christians who only care about gathering together in their safe communities and doing churchy things. But here we see that it is the gathering of believers in teaching hospitality and piety that bears the fruit of evangelism. The nature of a biblical church is so rich with the gospel that people who come into that church see the glory of Jesus Christ, understand the gospel message, and respond to it, and are saved by it. What does this mean? It means that the church is God's greatest evangelism plan. Jesus says in Matthew 16 to Peter, he says, On your confession of faith, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God wants to grow his kingdom through believers living out their faith together on Sundays and throughout the week. Many of us treat evangelism in the church kind of like a weird dating relationship. And that's where you know you have this really weird family member that at some point you're going to have to introduce this person to, but you need to make sure you have enough relational capital first, Right? Like, you know Uncle Chuck does that really weird thing when he's eating mashed potatoes, and you don't necessarily want her to see that yet, but you're going to have to cross that road eventually. And so we share the gospel with them at work and do that. What we do is we share the gospel, we help them get converted, and then we know, well, geez, now i got to go introduce them to one of my weird friends at church. But your weird friends at church are part of God's means of faithfully sharing the gospel with them. One cannot come to Christ without coming to the community of Christ. And it's actually the weirdness of the church. It's us coming in here with our unique idiosyncrasies and our weaknesses and our places where we need repentance and our places where God is growing us that actually shows that none of this is about us. But that it's about Jesus who is infinitely sufficient and not even all the churches and all the people who gather to worship King Jesus on a Sunday across the globe are even a fraction of who Jesus is as the perfect head of this church. And it is he who saves and it is he who captivates our hearts. And we gather people to see this because we know that everything we do is meant to show people all the more who Jesus is. And in some surprising twist of Jesus being smarter than us, he's not given for us to see him in the flesh today. 
but he has given us his body to be seen in the church. And lastly and in closing, we gather because the Lord's Day is the distinct day of the Christian community. There's something really interesting that happens. We're gonna talk about the Lord's Day here in a second, but bear with me. There's something interesting that happens when Jesus comes. He comes, we'll read this as, as we go through the Gospel of Luke, to fulfill the law. All the perfect requirements of holiness have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And for Israel, in the law, there was always one day a week which was markedly distinct from everything else. And that was the last day of the week, the Sabbath, the day of rest, where just as the Lord rested in creation, he gave this enduring ordinance to his people to rest. But when Jesus was on earth, his treatment of the Sabbath, though never sinful, Jesus never sinned against the law, was always frustrating to the religious people. Why? Because the religious people were always concerned about what they couldn't do on the Sabbath, where Jesus was dedicated to showing people what they should do on the Sabbath. Though it was distinct and upheld by Jesus in all of his perfect obedience, it was a distinct day of mercy, of healing, and of fellowship. And so what's beautiful to see is that in the book of Acts, this distinct day of the week moved from the Sabbath, the last day of the week, to the first day of the week. And that's because it was on the first day of the week that Jesus was resurrected and began to appear to his disciples who had already gathered. And it was on this first day of the week, Sunday, what was scattered throughout the week was celebrated together as a gathering on a Sunday. And this gathering, even before scripture was closed, was already referred to, we see John do this in Revelation chapter one, as the Lord's day. The first day of the week, in light of the resurrected Jesus, God's people had a distinct day of the week. The gospel which promises us a Sabbath rest yet to come, that's Hebrews 4 verse 9, has given us rest from the works of the law right now. But here's the beautiful thing of this. We think about this day, this Lord's Day we're on right now. It means that we no longer come together primarily under a day of rest. But now we come together as rested people on the day of resurrection life where we get to show people what rested living looks like in the power of the gospel. The Puritan pastor, author of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan calls the Lord's Day the market day of the soul. It's when all of us get to come into this wonderful kitchen of God's grace and fill up our carts and exchange recipes and give goods so that we have exactly what we need to live life as God would have us live the rest of the week. Not with bare pantries, but with abounding provision for all God would have us to do. It's where all of us together begin to show the world what resurrection life looks like. Where we get together and we like vibrate with this energy of the Holy Spirit inside of us to where if someone else comes in today, they look around and they say, this group is electric. There is something here enlivening and animating these people that is not present at my chess club, that's not present at my fantasy football draft party, that isn't present in my skiing group. This means that we gather on the Lord's Day with two distinctions, this two, not four, two, two distinctions in closing is first we gather for participation. We gather on this distinct day not to sit and to be passive, but to engage and to be active. 
When we come together, we participate in Christian life together. Look at how Paul puts this participation. We'll talk more about this as our series goes on in verses uh, Ephesians 5, 19 through 21. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The gathering of believers is a distinct time where we address, we give thanks, we submit to one another out of reverence to Jesus. The way we serve each other is the extension of how we serve our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then I want to speak to you for a moment specifically, because I think generally when women come, God generally just makes women a little more sociable. It's easy for them to engage, whether it's just with dropping off kids or with other ladies. But men, we are sometimes prone to just be paperweights or eye candy, if you will, (laughs) on the way to church. And I want to say this, if you are a guy who goes on a rant on Facebook about these kids and their participation trophies, don't you dare treat the Lord's church like a participation trophy. To come to church, and you sit, and you observe, and you give yourself a big gold star when you go home because you went and you did a thing. That is no more valuable than winning the most improved sunflower seed spitter award at a fourth grade t-ball tournament. It means nothing. The Lord's calling you to something more in this gathering and on this day. Everyone, but specifically, I want to speak to men, to dads here. Lead in your active participation. Pray yourself. If you're single, pray with your uh, guys who are in your D group, in your community group. Pray with your roommates. Pray with your families on Sunday night already going into this day that God would work in his gathering, that he would give you opportunities to see his beauty, to help others see his beauty, to pray for others, pray for the one who's preaching, pray for who's leading the service, pray for the text we're over. And when you get here, lead in your worship. Participate in your prayers Lead in welcoming one another, in seeing a need, in meeting it. Lead in inviting your kids' friends to ride with you on the way to church. Participate in this gathering and see how God rewards those who eagerly participate and believe that he will bless this gathering. We come here. What we've seen in the book of Luke, we saw both, uh, we saw in Anna and we saw in Simeon, two people who were not priests, but who daily went to the temple. Why? Because they believed God worked in the gathering of his people, even while they waited. So we gather with participation. But secondly, we gather in anticipation. I've mentioned this before, but I'm always shocked at what astounds missionaries when they come back from the mission field. I know a family who served the Lord in uh, one of the most commonly posted Instagram destination islands. Secluded, it's beautiful, clear water, these wonderful uh, bungalows. I almost said bungalows. I don't know what that is. Bungalows. Is Is that a word? Bungalow? Is that a thing? Okay, so all these wonderful things. And yet behind the veil of the perfection and the sandy shores and the sunshine is one of the most dangerous places to live as Christians, as the Muslim government there is dedicated to stamping out and killing any Christian presence. 
And when they come home, I won't name bash their city, but they come home to nothing spectacular. And when they get here, they are astounded. Why? What captivates and excites those who see the things daily that we would give anything to experience? The gathering of the Lord's church. Because despite our wants and our weaknesses, despite our ongoing construction and limited kids' classrooms, despite snowy days and global pandemics, the gathering of the Lord's church is as close to heaven as we get this side of death. That sounds like exactly something a preacher who wants you to come to church would say, but that's exactly what God gives us in his word. When we get to heaven, it's going to look a lot less like Sandals Jamaica and more like an ordinary Sunday in Juliet, Montana. What we see in heaven is an assembly of God's people who forever sing God's praises as their king and nations who come together to walk in the light of the Lamb for all eternity. Which means when we gather in this world in brokenness, in weakness, in moments of repentance, in moments of caring for those who are grieving because of the loss of a loved one or a child not walking with the Lord. We come to this place and we say, one day it will be better. One day the Lord will take his church and he will wipe every tear from our eye. And this, this is a foretaste of that moment. This shows us the need of Jesus and the joy of Christian fellowship. And when things are good, when the worship team plays that favorite song, when the preacher quotes your favorite sermon, when the person came up to you without giving anything and said, can I pray for you? You look burdened today and it was a week where you needed prayer and you were burdened. That all of that goodness is also a reminder that it's gonna get even better that the worst day in the church is a promise of greater days to come in heaven and the best day in the church is a drop in the bucket compared to what we will enjoy for all of eternity. So it is a privilege then for us to view the gathering of the Lord's church and not to say, how much time do I need to put in this week? But instead to say, how can I get more of this? How can I enjoy this more? How can I be beneficial more to the glory of God and my brothers and sisters in the faith? And here's the beautiful thing. I'm gonna leave the application of this text up to the Holy Spirit to do this. And that is this. If you are one who has repented, who believes in the gospel, has been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then this is the work the Holy Spirit will do in you. They will create a longing for this and they will make you wonderfully inventive for how you participate in this gathering, for the glory of God, for the benefit of your brothers and sisters, and for your own deep, personal, abiding joy. And so as we conclude today, waste not this gathering or the rest of this day, but let us together with glad and generous hearts give thanks to the Lord for all he has done. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your loving kindness to send your son to save us. And while you save us as individuals known intimately by Jesus Christ, you also save us into a body of believers known corporately 
That is all of the believers across the globe who are in your universal church, but it is also those who gather together to be known by each other and by you as a local church. Lord, we pray that you give us eyes to see this church as you see it and to see it as a tool that you've given for us to love others and to enjoy you all the more. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.